You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. Today's show is part of The Education Project, a special series of stories addressing equity in education, both in the community and in schools. This work is supported through an inspiring equity in education fellowship with the William Casper Graustein Memorial Fund. Data shows that outcomes for students in U.S. schools is largely determined by gender, race, class, ethnicity, and special needs. It is no surprise that the systems that fail and disadvantage people in society also fail our students in schools. The solutions to undoing these inequities are complex, but they are possible. On today's show, we will discuss an approach to transforming teacher education to address racial equity in schools. Teachers carry their passions and also their biases into the classroom. Despite the best of intentions, implicit biases such as racism can show up without teachers even realizing it. They may have lower expectations for black and brown students, choose books that prioritize white history, or see an upset student of color as a threat rather than as a student that needs support. The cumulative effects of these types of incidents on students of color over months and years can and does have a massive negative impact on their success in schools and in society. Joining me for this conversation are Dr. Jessica Powell, an assistant professor of education in the Department of Curriculum and Learning at Southern Connecticut State University. She's also the co-director of the Urban Education Fellows Program. Her teaching and research focuses on issues of social justice, inequity, and teacher preparation. Also with me today is Tai Olasanoye. He is a ninth and 10th grade English and, and history teacher at Whitney High North, an ACES regional school for students with social, emotional, and behavioral issues. He graduated with a master's in education from Southern Connecticut State University in May 2017. He also teaches an intro to education course at Southern for high school students enrolled in the Gear Up Teacher Recruitment Program. And with us today is Rebecca Harmon. She's a first grade teacher at Nathan Hale School in New Haven, and she just graduated from Southern less than two months ago in December 2017. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. So I wanted to start us with something personal to enter into this conversation with and kind of ground this in who you are as teachers. And I wanted to pose a question starting with you, Ty. What is the first time that you were aware of race in school that you remember as a kid? Um, <clears throat> I would probably say I had to be like eight or nine years old. That'd be what, third, fourth grade maybe? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you kind of start to realize, uh, you, you start to notice, you know, this person looks different from me. And you pick up on little differences between people's appearances. And uh, <clears throat> that's when I really started to realize, you know, most of my teachers are, they don't look like me, you know. A lot, mostly female, of course, but, you know, also race-wise. So that was the first time I actually was aware that I can, you know, I made that connection. So most of your teachers were white. Right. And, and you're black. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that you remember? Or just, just kind of being aware? Just of being aware. That was the first time I, I was cognizant that, okay, look, there's a difference in how I look compared to how my teachers look. How did you feel about that as a kid? I'm not really sure if, if I was really thinking that in depth about it. Yeah. But I just know that I noticed it at that point. Right. You know, I don't, I don't think I really, you know, was, was able to think that deeply into it. Okay. You know. Yeah. And Rebecca, what about you as a, as a white student in school? What, what's your first memory of of race as a child? I think I started to notice in middle school, because in my school and in my town in general, that's when I really started to notice the lack of racial diversity. Um, I remember people would always mention the one black family, because I went to school, it was mostly white, and then there was like this one black family, and that's how the town would address them. It was mostly good things, but they were still labeled as the one black family. So I think that's when I started to think about race and how it was talked about. And then in high school, we had this one black student who transferred out in like seventh grade. And then in high school, he transferred back into our high school. And I remember his first day, people were so mean to him that he came to school the next day with a cop escort. 
And then a few days later, he was transferred back out. And, like, I think that's when I really started to be interested in looking at how race is thought about and talked about and perceived in school, especially because from my point of view, it didn't seem like the administration really did anything about it. They were just kind of like, oh, we transferred back out and we never talked about it again. So I'm not sure if I have the whole picture, but that's how how I perceived it in high school that a black male transferred into our school. He was harassed and threatened. He left, the school dropped it. So I think like that's my first real memory and what really motivates me as a teacher to have conversations about race and diversity, even if you're in a really homogenous community that I grew up was mostly white. So even in those communities, I think we have to talk about it. And that's like the memory that motivates me to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm also wondering about, you just gave an example of something that sort of inspired your interest in education. Mm-hmm. But do either of you have memories about um, teachers in school and kind of what you would have liked them to do differently, like a way you would have liked them to be different. I spoke about grade school, but hearing Rebecca talk about high school, yeah, I, I have a stark memory of that, where, where it was so apparent, it was so evident that I was a black male. Um, if you want me to go into yeah, it. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was walking, it was winter, I was walking down the street, it was late at night, and I, you know, so I had my hands in my coat pocket, and so a police car pulls up, they put the bright searchlight on me. And so I stopped, you know, I just stopped. I have nothing to hide. So the police officer gets out and he's like, don't move. So I'm like, okay. He comes up, he's like, where are you going? He's asking me all these questions. Where are you headed? I'm like, I'm headed home. And um, he's like, put your hands on the hood. So, you know, I take my hands out, I put my hands on the hood, and I'm like, what's going on? He's like, don't worry about it. So he searches me and then, He's like, you know, I have no license. I must be like 14. Mm-hmm. And um, so he says, uh, when he finishes searching me, he's asking me where I live, where my address is. And then he says, uh, well, there was a robbery in the area. Somebody broke into some store and stole something. So, you know, but I was like, if I stole something, you think I would be walking down a, a well-lit street? I'd be gone now. When you rolled up, I would have ran. I'm like, why would you, you know? He's like, well, you know, you fit the description. And I remember that the thing that was poignant is that this was one of my D.A.R.E. officers. You, you remember D.A.R.E.? I don't know if mm-hmm. they had D.A.R.E. at my school. Yeah, yeah. And he was one of the D.A.R.E. officers that would come to my school when I was in grade school. So I, I recognized his face, and I'm like, this guy doesn't even remember me. Right. All of a sudden, I went from this cute kid in elementary school to the perp, you know? Right. So it was just like, for me, it was like, wow. I, I transitioned to... The criminal, you know, the, right. that to fit that criminal description, that generic, right. whatever it is, description of what a criminal looks. Like. He's got a big coat on. He's got his hood up. He's, you know, whatever that is, right. whatever that would have been like. So, yeah, that, that just kind of stuck in my head always. Of course, that's yeah. that's an intense experience. And it, yeah. you know, one of the arguments for having um, police officers in schools is to develop relationships right. between kids and officers, right. which right. clearly in that case did not right. work because it's not just for you as a kid. It's also right. for them as an officer right. to see you as a human being. Right. So that doesn't always work. It doesn't always yeah. work. So are there any things about your teachers in schools that you felt like you wish that they were ways that you wish that they were different? Uh, I wish uh, coming up that there was more diversity in the teaching staff. I could have definitely benefited from more male role models, period, mm-hmm. whether it's r- role models of color or, or whatever. But definitely more masculine energy would have helped, you know, because there's certain certain approaches that a man takes about things that a woman would be less likely to take and vice versa. In my schools, I just wish we talked about diversity more. Like, I didn't hear the word diversity in my school until probably senior year. My only memory of talking about race at all is in fourth grade when we read Roll of Thunder, Hear Me Cry. And I don't remember the debrief or anything, but that's my only memory of race at all in school was reading that one book. So I wish it was just talked about more. And my school wasn't diverse, but there's still so many different ways you can bring in race or bring in diversity, even when the community is so white. Sure. So I just wish that we had more opportunities to be immersed in diversity or think about diversity 
because I know when I, I lived at Southern my first two years, and I was, like, amazed at how diverse the campus was and how diverse the community was. And I just had no idea what I was going into growing up. I grew up in Lebanon, Connecticut, so it's a really white town still. So, like, moving to Southern was totally eye-opening. But I wish that my schooling had prepared me a little bit for how diverse our actual world is sure. compared to my one town. Can I ask you a question? Because it's interesting when we talk about race, we often start talking about people of color mm-hmm. as race. But like, I'm curious for you growing up in a white community, how did people talk about whiteness as talking about race? Like, Do you have impressions of that? Because that's also talking about race, right? Mm-hmm. So. I don't think we really talked about it all. They just, everyone just thought they were superior to anybody else who would move to town or come to town. And so a lot of that, like, white privilege. How did you notice that? Like, what kinds of things? I don't think I noticed it when I was in middle school or high school. Um, maybe senior year when people would, like, drive to school with a Confederate flag flying from their truck. But <laughs> hello, I don't think I really <laughs> noticed it in the moment. But, like, reflecting now... I'm yeah. Like, whoa. So is this something that yeah. you feel like you've been turned on to thinking a little bit about because going through this program at Southern? Definitely. Where you started to really learn about race and in yeah, a different way? Definitely. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you both for sharing these things. It's a good start to the conversation. And I want to welcome Jessica Powell, who is a professor at Southern, who you deal with uh, helping students learn and talk about this stuff all the time. So yeah. do you have some impressions, things you want to respond to here? I think that something that I do with my students, and and I think I was thinking about today, um, my class today, where I said to them, we're gonna start, this is my classroom management class, and my students don't know what they're getting into. And I say, we're gonna start by talking about slavery and the legacy of white supremacy. And so we spend the first, you know, week and a half before we even get to school to prison pipeline issues about understanding this history. And so we spent all class today unpacking this and I'm showing them images and I'm showing them, we start at the middle passage. And then I'm hearing the students talk and I'm hearing them say, my students of color and my white students, we never talked about this in school. I've never had this conversation Nobody has ever engaged this in my classrooms. And so now they're adults, ready to be teachers, and this is the first time that they're having these conversations. And, um, and I think that's a really powerful, yeah. um, powerful piece. Yeah. yeah. And so you've come to Southern over the past few years and have started to work on transforming the teacher education program there. And can you explain a little bit why the program needs to be yeah. transformed? I mean, you just gave one example, but yeah. why else does it need to be transformed? So our schools today are just as segregated, if not more, than since, they, since the 1960s. And um, that means children of color, black, Latinx families are significantly more likely to attend hyper-segregated schools, over 90% children of color living in poverty. The students and Ty, you mentioned this, our student body is predominantly white, middle class, female. Your student body at our student, Southern our, becoming, right, our, profess- becoming teachers. Our folks that are, are pre- preparing to be teachers. So we have a task, and these are students who have never talked about race, and never talked about whiteness, and never talked about privilege. And so we need to prepare these teachers to not only um, engage in anti-racist teaching, but they really need to deeply understand this legacy of slavery that is that is embedded in our school system today. So we have, I mentioned the school to prison pipeline before. Um, you know, the issues in our schools, it's not just that they're segregated, but they're segregated and unequal resources. Children are experiencing implicit bias, which means they're more likely to be um, Ex- children of color are more likely to be expelled, suspended, or even arrested mm-hmm. by those officers in their schools. So we need to prepare teachers to react to that, to um, engage in some risk-taking in their classrooms that, that, challenges, that challenges those 
um, oppressive structures. Mm-hmm. Did you say your your students that you have are a mix of white students and students of color, or are mostly students white students still? It's predominantly white, mm-hmm. predominantly white female, um, but we do have um, black, African American, and Latinx students. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is predominantly white. It is the most diverse. Um, classroom of pre-service teachers that I've ever worked in and I've, I've worked at a few different universities so mm-hmm. this is it is more diverse here than in other than in other spaces but it is still predominantly white and how is this experience for you as a white professor um, doing this work yeah so I've been um, I've been writing about this lately and thinking about what it means to be a white professor engaging in this work and I've been um, with my colleagues playing around with this idea of really challenging the idea of the ally, the white ally, mm-hmm. and instead of the ally who might think that they, so I'm thinking about the white ally for racial justice who might think that they care about their students, but they're still engaging in deficit perspectives. What does deficit um, So they might still think like they're poor students and they're poor families, they need so much help. And so it's not building coalitions with communities of colors and, and students of color, but still um, prioritizing their white agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's acting out of white guilt instead of out of genuine um, relationship. So moving beyond this ally paradigm, I'm thinking about what does it mean t- for me to be an accomplice for racial justice and to help my students become accomplices for racial justice. And the way I'm differentiating between the ally and the accomplice, the accomplice t- take risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and And that looks different in different classrooms and in different spaces, but there's vulnerability and risk-taking. And so that's what I want. I have to do that in my classroom. I'm an untenured faculty talking about white supremacy um, in my classroom on the first day. So there's some risk-taking, right? And and I'm very explicit with my students that they're going to be engaging in that same risk-taking in their classrooms. And I think that I think that classrooms are spaces for direct action. Mm-hmm. And when we engage in anti-racist teaching practices, that's direct action. Um, and there's a, the classrooms are really radical spaces for that. That's great. So Rebecca, you got to experience a little bit of this anti-racist curriculum in the end of your master's degree program. Can you explain a little about how, how this impacted you? How did you receive this, this information? Was it uncomfortable? Was it was it exciting, both? <laughs> so in my first couple of years at Southern is when I connected with the Urban Education Fellows Program. So that's where I kind of first started exploring, learning about race, especially as a white female. So then when I got into a class like Jessica's, I was ready to handle the conversation and navigate the conversation with other peers in the class. But overall, it really encouraged and inspired me to reflect on my own thoughts and my own implicit biases and how they might impact my teaching. And it's funny that Jessica talks about teachers who think like, oh, my poor students, because I laugh because when I was in like elementary school and middle school, I always thought I'd be like the Aaron Gruel of teachers, the teacher from the Freedom Writers who comes in and like saves the day. Mm-hmm. But then now, from what I've learned through the anti-racist curriculum, and I've also attended um, social justice training through the Children's Defense Fund, because I worked at a freedom school in Hartford, and I went on behalf of Southern for summer. When I think about teachers who want to be like the Aaron Gruwell, the savior, I often think about um, Dr. Chris Edmond. He, te- he wrote for white folks who teach in the hood, and he said that if you view your students that way as charity cases, then you automatically see something's wrong with them. And charity is not the same as justice. So like when I see teachers who want to go in and save the day, I often laugh because that's exactly where I started. Mm -hmm. So this curriculum that I went through and this exploration on race and looking at my own biases has really changed my mindset a lot. So I do credit my courses and right sometimes just naming work. things then helps you to realize when you're doing those things so I wanted to ask you about one of the things you're doing is teaching a group of high school students who now come to Southern as part of the gear up program mm-hmm. and um, there are they being recruited as potential teachers for New Haven 
I believe so, yes. And so many of them are students of color, is yes. that correct? And yeah. are, some of them are male. Is it a mix of male and female students? Very small percentage of males, like two males. Okay. One, one is African-American, one is Hispanic. Okay. And you're so, teaching an intro to education class right, to them. Right. So um, can you share a little of that experience and actually why you think that's important, that, that we be recruiting more teachers mm-hmm. of color into our public school programs? Uh, into our yeah. public schools. I, I think it's great. I wish it was around when I was in, in high school because because of the fact that I never saw an African-American male teacher or not saw but had one, it, was, it wasn't even something that I considered as a career choice. It just wasn't real to me. You know, it's just, it's not even something that I considered, sadly. <laughs> so it wasn't until I got to college to where I, the first thought entered my mind, hey, I would, maybe I wouldn't mind uh, teaching. You know, I took an internship. Somehow, you know, a roommate of mine was doing an internship at a school, and that's how it, it occurred to me. But this program is really cool because it's it's like getting a glimpse into the, a possible future. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you I'm in a room full of minority, potential minority teachers, which is really cool because this is what we need. We need uh, Hispanic women, Hispanic men, African-American men, African-American women to be teachers. We need kids to see that there's not a template for what a teacher is supposed to look like because I, that's the reaction I get a lot of times. I come into the classroom and it's like, yo, this, this dude's the teacher? Like, <laughs> And I'm like, their, their image of a teacher isn't me. Right. And that's why their reaction is that way. So, I, I, you know, while, while the, you know, there's a certain uh, amount of, you know, I'm happy that I could be that for them, it's it's also sad in a lot of ways because yeah. these kids shouldn't be thinking like that. They shouldn't have that shouldn't be reality right. for these kids. Yeah, that's a big you know? piece is is helping them just when they're dreaming about what they're gonna do right. that that's something they think they yeah. can achieve. Opening so. up their minds to, yeah. to possibilities. So yeah. I, I feel like I was limited in that way because here's something I love doing now that I only discovered later in life. Mm-hmm. I wasn't third and fourth and wasn't in third and fourth grade saying. Yeah, you know, I want to be just like Mr. So-and-so because he's my teacher and he changed my life. That never happened to me, so. Yeah, well, it's great you're doing that for yeah. other kids now. It's Thank exciting. You. Thank you. And it's really important. I mean, I think, can you share a little, Jessica, about studies that show about what is the impact of kids, not only kids of color, but white kids, too, of having teachers of color? And why is that important? Yeah, I think that there's there's been a significant number of research um, in past decades really that tells us that we need more teachers of color. We need more teachers of color for all students. Um, In particular, some studies have shown that teachers of color are able to, um, are more likely to hold their students of color to higher expectations. One of the problems with white teachers, and and this is hard for some of our white pre-service teachers to swallow, is that there is study after study after study that shows that white teachers hold their students of color especially student, male students of color, to lower expectations and implicitly. They don't realize that they do. And so um, that has obviously pretty wide consequences for the, um, their opportunities to be successful, for children's opportunities. So having teachers of color in the classroom um, is, a, is a way to, what, what studies have shown is a way to, to mitigate that. Um, and having teachers from different perspectives, right, from different backgrounds and perspectives to open up um, open up dialogue around issues that maybe white teachers would be uncomfortable. Um, I know that when I talk to some students of color who went to schools with black teachers, they were more likely to um, have in their curriculum narratives about black history at where that is completely absent in um, in a lot of other, in most other classrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a lot of black teachers growing up in New Haven. Not a lot, but I had a number mm-hmm. of them. And I think when I look back on it, I think it really did affect my perception of, like, when I think of people I respect. It wasn't a question about, like, <clears throat> yeah. only respecting white people as teachers or as, mm-hmm. as, like, role models. And so I think that yeah. it's very powerful for white students as well. And, and important. Yeah. And when our white students are only see the, seeing people of color as the custodians or as the assistants, right? And so not in those positions 
of um, authority or power, or, or, or ra I'd rather a, a role model to look up to rather than authority or power. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's part of the, the curriculum. That's called the hidden curriculum, mm -hmm. right? So it's right. teaching students something about race. Yeah. yeah. I just want to piggyback off what Jessica said. Yeah. Um, being a younger African-American male teacher, I, f I find that um, initially students tend to be like, well, you know, they they you know they look at you and they, it's like anything else, anybody else. They kind of put you in a box mentally. Okay, this he looks this way. He seems kind of cool. Yeah, he's cool. I, I think I could get away with you know just doing whatever I want. Maybe put my feet up, not work as hard. And I think so. I think it's a dual. It's a dual thing here. It's a, it's a situation where, on the one hand, you can be this, this role model for this, this student. And on the other hand, you, you got to establish a certain boundary and establish parameters where you, you establish, look, this isn't going to be a cakewalk. Because, and I tell, I tell my students, I told the, the, I told the kids in the intro course at Southern, look, I'm not going to take it easy on you guys. Because if I did that, I'd be doing you a disservice. Mm -hmm. you know, no one's going to do favors for you in life. So I know you might say, okay, look, this guy looks like me. We have this in common. He likes this type of music like we do. Okay, we, you know, we're good. We don't even have to try. So I like to dispel that myth right away. Like, look, if I did that for you, you know, I like you guys, but if I did that for you, that would be a disservice. Mm -hmm. and I'd be setting you up to fail yeah. because the next person is not going to play that game with you, Yeah, you know? So I think that's an important lesson to, to, to teach them. Look, I'm not doing this because I dislike you. I'm doing this because I care about you and I want you to be prepared. Right. You know? I care about all of you guys, but I'm not your buddy. I'm not your friend. I'm not your pal. I'm your teacher. Right. I'm like, we can become friendly and, and develop a somewhat of a friendship. But I was like, there needs to be boundaries. Right. You know, I'm your teacher first. And these are the type of things I say to them and to hold to make sure they know I'm going to hold them accountable. Right. Like, I'm your teacher first. Because, you know, some of them, they'll come in and say, oh, Mr. O, he, Mr. O, that's what they call me. Mr. O is my boy. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm your teacher. Yeah. You know, because. Well, this they, is good that they picked you to right. teach this course because right. that boundary is, is, very, is very important. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about classroom management? Mm -hmm. Because what I observe in schools, and I've been in schools in New York City, in Boston, and in New Haven a lot, um, the there's so many kids in the classrooms, first of all. There's like 25 to 28 kids. Maybe your school, because you have special needs right. kids, is a little different. But mm -hmm. in the average classroom, there's a ton of kids to one teacher, usually. You have kids with really wide range of learning abilities, often. You'll have kids who are like struggling a lot, and then kids who are sort of in the middle, and kids, some kids on the upper end, and you're trying to teach like this wide range of kids. A lot of kids coming into school with a lot of challenges because of some of them with trauma at home or just, you know, other kinds of, of things going on. So teachers are faced with like this enormous challenge. And then all of a sudden they have to figure out how to get all these kids to listen to them in school and, and be able to teach something. And I don't get the sense from watching a lot of teachers that they're learning very much in their master's degree programs about how to do that in a way that isn't just based on reward and punishment. Because most of what I've observed is if you do this, you get a good grade or you get to have this incentive field trip or this other reward. And if you don't do it, then you get suspended. Or if you act out, you get suspended or in-school suspension or you don't get the reward or any of those things. Which is hugely problematic because, as you said, like a lot of times it's, it's boys and kids of color who are getting punished more. And so how in this program are you teach, starting to teach that different? Because I think yeah. it's an enormous gap in teacher education around the country. It's huge. So I'm very, very clear with my students about what they're seeing in schools and about how that's, that approach to classroom management is about controlling bodies. It's about controlling bodies so that you can get to the curriculum. And then I, I, with my students, I say, we have to flip that. We actually have to unlearn that completely and see supporting children's social-emotional growth as part of your curriculum. It's not something you want to do quickly so you can get to the literacy or the math. You, it's something that you have to say this is a to take the time, like you, Rebecca was saying, to debrief, to have conversations around these issues. 
um, that when children make a mistake, to help them learn from these mistakes and to expect these challenges in the classroom, um, that's part of your curriculum. And so I think it's really easy for teachers to, um, there's a phenomenon of like flip charts, right? Like you're on green at the beginning of the day and then you make a mistake and then you're on yellow and then you're on red. Um, or turning your um, like a clothespin, you know, flip your clothespin or writing names on the board. All of those ways of responding to challenging behavior are easy. They don't involve any thinking. Child misbehaves, turn your card. And it's an illogical consequence. It's not related to their behavior. And it's not about supporting their emotional growth. It's about controlling bodies to get to something else that the teacher or the school thinks is more important. And so what, we, what we're trying to do at Southern, um, and I do acknowledge that programs around the country, not all of them are engaging these conversations. Um, some of it is some classroom management classes are about here are strategies to use in your classroom. And I strategies come last in my class because I want students to understand how and why they need to use these, um, this responsive approach. So how do we build relationships with students? Every single day I tell my students to start, and we actually do it in our class, we start every single class with a meeting and we sit in a circle and it's not a meeting where you do calendar and patterns. It's a meeting where we sit and we talk to each other and we learn to listen to each other. And then we, and that's what I expect them to do in their classrooms. And I expect them to use consequences that are meaningful and that are aimed at helping children develop social responsibility, self-discipline. So this is something that at Southern we're really trying to transform. And my students say, oh, well, I have friends at another university and they're not getting this. And so it is something that I think um, right now is, is sort of unique to Southern, and we hope that this will become a generational shift so that our, our students in the classroom will have some humanity and dignity brought back in. Yeah. Can you give an example of what that looks like? Because I think we can use terms like, yeah. like you know, logical consequences yeah. and things, but what does it look like when a, a kid in a class is, yeah. is misbehaving or is struggling and it's disrupting yeah. the class? What does it look like to respond to that? In a different way. So first I would say that it's really important that teachers are spending the first month or month and a half really, really talking and unpacking what the expectations and rules are in the class and having kids practice them and role play them and talk about them so you're, they're really knowledgeable about what their expectations are. So once you've done that, you've eliminated a lot of a lot of behaviors that you that kids would have in the classroom that would be challenging when teachers just jump right into the quote unquote you know academic curriculum. So once you've established that and you've talked to kids about what logical consequences are and what makes sense, and you brainstorm that with kids, then you hold them accountable, right? So if say it's a meeting time on the on the rug and um, a child is poking other people or whispering or you know some some rule breaking right what makes sense what consequence exactly fits that and so sometimes it's a loss of privilege well so it's a privilege to be on the rug with us right now you need to go back to your seat never ever ever take away recess <laughs> that just we, that's a blanket rule we don't play as an ethical right for children so that's not something we would ever advocate for sometimes if there's a you break it you fix it logical consequence so if they hurt somebody's feelings or they need to repair a situation, we, we help children kind of repair that with, with the other child. So there's that, that, those are maybe some examples of what logical consequences might look like, but they involve some intellectual work on the part of the teacher, right? They involve thinking about, okay, what behavior just happened? What, what, loss, what loss of privilege might make sense right now? And sometimes it is just a redirecting of the behavior, like eyes up here or a crisscross applesauce they're just reminders sometimes we don't need to jump to go, go to the your seat. yeah go mm -hmm. go to your seat or go to timeout right mm -hmm. um, so so there's some thinking that the teacher really needs to do and um, in responding but i think the more and what i tell my students it's hard at first but the more you do it you know you spend a few years and the behaviors are usually patterns and you'll see similar behaviors and you'll kind of know what kind of consequences make sense and because you've built 
relationships with students and you know your students well, ideally in this type of classroom, um, you're able to respond in a way that's meaningful to individual children. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with um, shame at school, like not shaming? So the example of like the kids sitting on the rug and if it's the kid who's always getting in trouble, right, and then you tell them go sit in your seat, like that kid is then singled out, they can feel shame and that can then like build other problems throughout the day. How do you teach about that and how to handle handle the issue of shaming kids? Because that's also a really pervasive way that people try to manage behavior is yeah. by shaming. Well, I tell my, my students the most common form of behavior management that they see where it's the flip chart with all the kids' names and they have to get up and turn their card, that is shaming children. And writing their name on the board, that's shaming children. And so we see it and they, they now they can come back to class and tell me stories of how children are really being psychologically abused. And when teachers are, are responding to behaviors, which kids misbehave, adults misbehave, right? We have to have some empathy there. And um, Especially on spring break. <laughs> right? I always say to my students, who went the speed limit to get to class today, right? So we all break rules. But um, we're, we're teaching children a very horrible and important message when we shame them and we're teaching them that it's okay for people to treat you this way. It's okay for people who are more powerful you, more powerful than you to treat you this way. And then the children watching are also learning that it's okay for adults to treat you this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think how children, I think we want to respond to the challenging behaviors in a way that maintains dignity at all times, and that looks different for different children. Um, some children, you know, going back to their seat to sit at, at their seat because and they have to wait a few minutes to come back to the rug, um, that, that wouldn't bring upon shame, especially if you've created a classroom environment where there's profound relationships between you and the children um, and the, amongst the children. Then when they make a mistake, you actually talk about, we all make mistakes. The teacher even models that, right? So when the teacher makes a mistake, like when I was teaching first grade, I raised my voice one time. I mean, I probably did it more than once when I was a first year teacher, but I remember one time raising my voice and then looking at the eyes of the children and they start to cry and they, the children gave me feedback and said, you know, we, that scared us. And I had to like own that and talk to them about it, how I made a mistake and how do I repair that with them? So the teachers are always modeling. Um, so yeah. I think I think the relationship building is really key to preventing a lot of that shame because then when you're responding to challenging behavior, you're doing it with love and the students know you're doing it with love. And so the things you just talked about mixed with learning about anti-racist, learning about the legacy of white supremacy and, and anti-racist um, education sort of do you feel like that starts to unpack that for people because part of you know even if someone just feels more love towards a girl child or a white child than a black child then you may still be replicating it so is Mm -hmm. that part of what you're talking about is kind of putting those two pieces together yeah I mean I think part of when we talk about anti-racist teaching we talk about um, it's also called like culture responsive teaching or culturally relevant teaching. There's a lot of language for it. Chris Emden, who you mentioned, talks about reality pedagogy in urban schools. Um, And really the core of that is knowing your students, letting them bring their their true selves into the classroom and what's important to them into the classroom and allowing these different perspectives to be shared and then bringing in some more explicit anti-racist teaching, right? So talking about hard issues, talking about problems in their communities, um, and holding space for that. And I think that that all is integrated in with, I mean, I, I don't even like to use the language of classroom management because it's really, that is about controlling bodies and we want to just be creating relationships and community in the classroom. And that's where those hard conversations around race and privilege can happen. Yeah. Does this resonate for both of you as teachers? Do you think about building a community in your classroom? Yeah, definitely. Rebecca, you want it? Definitely. And I always see teachers take away recess. 
And it's like I always see it and it always irks me because you can tell them it's against the district policy and that they're actually not allowed to do it. And they're not (laughs) because students need however many minutes of recess a day. But and they think it's going to solve the problems because kids love recess. So take away something they love. But when you only get that amount of time for like it's like 20 minutes at the most for exercise during the day and most teachers don't do energizers throughout the day so that 20 minutes is all most students get and then you take that away and it has nothing to do with the behavior that they're getting in trouble for it just makes no sense and irks me and I was also thinking about like the red light yellow light green light behavior charts I see those in classrooms all the time and I was observing in a classroom where the student would often have to be on yellow. So then it got to a point in the year where he would just like come in and put himself on yellow. Like he wouldn't even start the day on green because the expectation for his behavior had been set so low and he just expected to end up at least on yellow. Mm. So like that kind of management really bothers me and Mm. just sets up poor expectations for your students. It doesn't give them a community that they can grow in and learn from their mistakes. It just sets them up for failure. Yeah. So we only have a few minutes left, but I want to give us a second to talk about curriculum and the content of what students are actually learning. And is there a component of the work that you're doing that is helping teachers to think of culturally relevant curriculum? I know a lot of curriculum is dictated by by the city and but teachers do have some flexibility to add activities and and content is that something that you're working with teachers on it is something we're working on um i think it it's it is a real challenge because our students do feel like the content of their of their um curriculum is dictated elsewhere right but but that's something that we're trying to be explicit about is the the curriculum that you're given is a resource and how do you use it and how do you build upon it and so we talk a lot about bringing in uh, literature books that are written by people of color written um, by historically marginalized uh, communities and really using the literature to initiate conversations that would otherwise be really hard for our teachers to begin to talk about and so the the author of these books did some of the hard work for them, and then they're holding space for dialogue around these issues. I think that's um, that's one big piece to it. And, yeah. I, and I think it's so important that teachers read those books outside of the month of February. <laughs> like, I've been seeing everywhere teachers sharing the books they're reading for Black History Month. Like, you need to celebrate and read those books throughout the entire school year, not just in February where they learned about Ruby Bridges, Rosa Parks, and Martin Luther King. Like you need to bring those books in throughout the year so that it's not just February right, you learn about black history. And I've seen yeah. that so much just this month. So that made me think yeah. of that. Yeah. Are both of you as new teachers thinking about this in terms of how to make the curriculum that you're handed feel interesting and relevant? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, in, in the school I work at, I have a fair amount of latitude in terms of um, what I can present to the children or the students. And... Um, I agree with, you know, I want to echo what Rebecca was, was saying. I mean, to have such a small period of time for the month of February to cover black history, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just way too much there. And more on that topic, black history always starts with the same people. Mm-hmm. Martin, and these people were, were great icons, but Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Ruby Bridges. What about the other people? You know, mm-hmm. what about the mega Evers, the Ida B. Wells? These are the people that people are, a lot of people are less familiar with that need to be introduced. Mm-hmm. And the whole topic of black history is sort of a sensitive, sensitive subject to me because, you know, it always starts with the middle passage. You never go back to the kingdoms of Africa mm-hmm. and Mesopotamia right. where right. astronomy was founded and mathematics. Kids right. don't know about this. That's right. You know, they think that, oh, I, my, my ancestry started with people on a slave ship. Mm-hmm. So if you can convince kids that their history started with being in a slave hold, in a slave ship, you know, they're going to... What, what do they gonna, think about their exactly, self-worth, if that's right, what you're thinking? Right. They're going to yeah. think that, you know, this is... Well, know, and learning the, learning the reality of the history of our country as well. You know, I was, I was looking up 
why we have so few black teachers. So after Brown versus Board of Education, so before Brown versus Board of Education went down, there were tons of black teachers, especially in the South. And then after Brown versus Board of Education, where there was legal integration of our schools, the white students and families didn't want black teachers. And so there was... They, all the black teachers were pushed out. Mm-hmm. And so. And black principals and black school boards, right. all of those. And businesses yep. and the, right. the destruction yep. of the black economy that right. once there was, once much right. stronger. And, and any so. effort to have a black community, you know, was, was it, you know, like in Tulsa, was, you know, was sabotaged in a lot of instances. So yeah. I think that says a lot about, you know, American history. And a lot of, you know, educators might not be comfortable with presenting that information, but, you know, it is the history of this country. Right. And. You know, it needs to be, you know, it needs to be, kids need to have the, the option to, to know that. Yeah. You know, on the subject of having diverse teachers, right? Yeah. Uh, st- when students know they're going to see you in the community, because I live in the community with the students I work with. I live in the city. I see these kids on the weekend. I see them over the summer. That's a really strong tool and influence because it allows you to hold them accountable for things outside of school. And just having them know that, look, uh, Mr. So- Mr. O lives around here. You know, that, that's really, I'm really fortunate to have that, uh, to be in that position because really quick, uh, you know, I saw a student over the summer and he was coming outside of the courthouse. I was mm-hmm. just passing by. And he was with his mother. His mother knows me. So, you know, we've, we've met on a number of instances, you know, through parent-teacher conferences and things like that. And... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, hey, man, what, what's up? At first, it's like, hey, how you doing? And then I, you know, when you associate, wait, you just came out of the courthouse. <laughs> so, right. So I said, hey, what's going on? You coming out of the courthouse? So he tells me, yeah, I got in trouble. And, you know, and and he, you can see the shame as he's explaining. I saw the shame as he's explaining it to me because he's hanging his head. And I'm happy that he was ashamed that, he, you know, he got in trouble. And he, he had, now he has to tell me. But I, you know, I told, you know, I had a pep talk with him and I told him, you know, look, you know, when we come back to school, you know, I'm going to expect to see some, you know, maturation because, you know, you've, you've grown, there's been some time passed, you come back to school, you learn from these mistakes. But the fact that he saw me, he didn't expect to see me, you know, the summertime, school's out. It's a powerful thing because he knows that you might just see me. I might just see you. Right, you or know, just at the grocery store. Or right, just at the wherever. grocery store. Yeah, you're stealing candy? What's community. going on? You know, you got, you got some explaining to do. You got eyes on you. So I think that's, that's really powerful because kids know they're going to be held accountable. They're going to have to answer to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, what this story reminds me of is the black teachers before Brown, before Brown v. Board in the segregated, you know, black schools where the, the teachers and the principals would there's a lot of ethnographies written on this that tell the story of the black teachers who lived in the community they went to church in the community they went to the stores with the children the principals and the teachers would go to the families' houses and so they had a very profound relationship um, they were p- really part of the fabric of the community and that was uh, dismantled after Brown v board and um, and I, I think that that is a powerful piece and there are I know that when I was teaching um, in Durham, North Carolina, which is uh, a town quite similar to New Haven, and I was teaching at a hyper-segregated school, and I moved into the community where I taught. And the teachers, the reaction of the teachers in the school was how how could you want to live in the community with your students? And not only that I was moving into a predominantly black and Latino community, but that you want to live in the community with your students. There's something really pathological about that was their perspective. And so I think that that was that's such um, a jarring difference to Ty's narrative about how important it is for teachers to be part of the community and not see um, their students as, as something that they need to be separated from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really difficult dynamic. Yeah. We have yeah. Tons and that, of and that, that, you know, segues to, like, the students, their relationship with the police and their experiences with the police. And I like to remind them, like, look, hello, I look like you, man. Mm-hmm. I don't leave here with a sign or a bumper sticker that says, I'm a teacher, leave me alone. You know, they see me and they, they don't know anything about me except black male. Right. Whatever prejudices they have, whatever racist stereotypes they have affect me, too. So I, I like to remind, I tell the students, look, 
I've been treated mis- unfairly by police sometimes too. Yeah, you know? and it's hard how much that happens in schools. Like with the school to prison pipeline, how many kids, how many more kids of color are being suspended and and impacted by that? Did you have some statistics that you wanted yeah, to share? Yeah, so um, this is from the Children's Defense Fund, the state of America's children. They do like a bunch of landmark reports, and this was from 2015. Every 31 seconds, one child in America is arrested. And in 2015, black children were 2.5 times more likely to be arrested than white children. And of all incarcerated youth, 69% of them are children of color, Mm. which is a huge percentage. And it can stem from what we do in our classrooms, how we handle behavior in our schools. And I think this conversation about the school-to-prison pipeline and police brutality and the realities of that the children that our teachers are going to be serving, that the realities that they face is something we explicitly talk about in our in our classroom management class. And in fact, on Thursday, we're going to watch 13th because I think they need to understand, our students who are going to become teachers, need to understand how deep this is. And it's not just... Um, It's not just about a reaction to behavior, but that's connected to these legacies of racism. And and it's um, it happens outside the classroom. And then the the classroom is this microcosm for for what children are experiencing outside. And I really think like talking about racism needs to be in the curriculum earlier, because the first time I talked about race in my education program was like towards the end of it. So the semester before I student taught. And in that class, I saw students who are about to be teachers say, like, oh, I'm not racist. I don't have any biases or anything. And I think it should be part of the program where they need to look at themselves. Because even if they think they're going to teach in this town that's homogenous, not diverse at all, what they think is diverse, you still need to be able to talk about race with those students. So a lot of students I saw deny it because it was, like, the first time and they didn't really digest what was being taught to them. Yeah. So I think as our program moves forward, these conversations need to really be grappled with. And I just I just want to add that, you know, Ty's teaching EDU 200, which is our initial course, which we have redesigned to be quite explicitly about unpacking race and privilege and discrimination so that our students are getting it from their first education course and then in layers throughout the program because we don't want that situation to happen. That's great. So we are out of time. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. I hope look forward to more conversations. Thanks for listening to the Table Underground Education Project. Check out our website, thetableunderground.com, for links, photos, recipes, and so much more. Listen to all past stories through the website or on any podcasting site such as iTunes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay in the know. Thanks again to the William Casper Graustein Memorial Fund for supporting this work. This is WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio.